And really what I want to talk about, I want to set this context because it's important. I want to talk about it as, uh, again, in the context of, of what the Buddha taught, uh, like uh, the, uh, the these people that I was with this morning, they said, what do you teach? And I said, I teach a class about attitude. And I didn't feel like starting in about Buddhism. It's arcane, if, you know, and I've got three minutes to talk to them about, you know, it's much clearer, it's much easier to say, it's like a church, and we talk about having an attitude. Would you like us to pray for you? Yes. Everybody would like for people to pray for them. And that's without even any metaphysics about it, you know, without any discussion about what you believe. It's nice to have people thinking about you. And to talk about those Four Noble Truths, life is challenging for everybody. We make it, uh, uh, we make extra suffering in our own minds dependent on the way that we are able to respond to the challenge. Now, I want to put a coda in there, a very big little sub thing. Um, It's not our fault if we don't respond brilliantly and wonderfully. You know, that that that's a big piece of it is karma, and a big piece of it is temperament, and a big piece of it is genetic. It's almost it's it's often it's a temptation in the spiritual world to suggest that if your mind relaxed, you'd have such an attitude that you'd be able to be all right about it, and you could be like this woman joking around on her way to the lumpectomy. I don't think that's any. It, it, I don't think we can can do that or not do that by dint of will. I think we can or we can't as a result of um, grace. I think I decided once. I actually wrote a story about this once. It's in some book where I wrote the four noble truths differently. The first noble truth and the second noble truth and the suffering is the struggling with what's true, and the third noble truth is that it's possible to let go of struggling and not suffer. And the fourth is the path. I wrote the third and a half noble truth. And it's actually in one of those books where I said, you know, there are things that I don't let go of. And that I look at myself and I say, I am suffering. I am suffering because I'm struggling with this. I'm still struggling with it. Mm-hmm. Knowing about it is not causing me to not, not struggle. The worst things, I think, to say to people is just let go. It's out of your hands. It's in the hands of God. It's in the hands of this. It's in the hands of that. But if you could, you would. And it's a terrible thing to say to people who are struggling. If we could, we would. That third and a half noble truth is that to the degree that I can't let go of the stories in my mind that cause me to suffer, I suffer. And at least I could be a little kind to myself. That I'm suffering. Say, so look at that. That's possible other people in my situation, but they are other people. And it's not my situation, it's their situation. Because the, 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 the fact of what you've got, breast cancer or colon cancer, or the death of a partner, or the loss of a job, or the death of a dream, they haven't got the same thing. They have that perhaps same element of thing, but they have a whole other body and mind around it with their whole karma around it. I read an article in this magazine. This one, this is the latest issue of Spirituality and Health. So it has a wonderfully uplifting article of a woman who in a million years I couldn't do this 
but she did, uh, who got a, uh, a uh, diagnosis of breast cancer. My, I'm reading this in the, in the mammogram place. Who, uh, who uh, said, I decided I was going to have the surgery. That was all I was going to do. And I was going to go surfing because surfing is my passion. And uh, it suggests that um, because she had such a positive attitude about herself, was determined to not necessarily get over it, but to use every moment of her life, that that was a curative thing. Maybe it was a curative thing. It was at least for the rest of her life up to now a good thing because she's managing to live enthusiastically. The lesson is not... It will cure you, I don't think. I think the lesson is to the degree that it's possible to say death is a normal thing. It happens to people. Until it happens to me, I want to live every day of my life. That maybe is the lesson in here. And so she tells about herself. She says she found out at the moment they told her what she had. She said, I knew I was going to die. I was not afraid. I did not cry. I needed a little time to set my life in order and prepare my daughter uh, and what she did after that, thought to myself, different person. I would have been afraid. I probably would have cried. I probably would have had another response. I don't think she's a better or worse person. She's a different person with different genes. I admire her tremendously. But there are less fearful people than me and more pe- fearful people than I. And it's one thing to think it's a possibility and another to admire what other people can or cannot do. And another to recognize this is me with my packet of stuff. I have this thing or that thing or the other thing. I am very respectful of um, the difference in everybody's neurology. Um, just, just that, that we are not, we don't come into this created equal. Do you remember oh, a couple of months ago? I read to you an article in, in the newspaper about um, from David Brooks, the uh, the columnist. Were you here that day? David Brooks, columnist for the New York Times, talking about um, uh, two women's experience with death. Um, Joan Didion and Marianne, Margaret Margaret William Marjorie Williams and. Uh, clearly favoring one over the other because the one was a realist, realized the situation, and faced it stiff upper lip. And the other, and Joan Didion's book is about how fell apart she became. And his was drawing a, a conclusion, you could see from his, from his writing, that stiff upper lip, that's the way to do it. That's the admirable one. It's just the one. You know, you don't get to choose. If we got to choose... Everybody would choose here to be heroic. and, st- But I wanted to put a different context around the whole business of living and dying. So I want to read you this Billy Collins poem, which I just found yesterday. I want to know what you think of it before I tell you what I think of it, so get ready to have a test. <laughs> uh, it has been calculated, this is called flock, It has been calculated that each copy of the Gutenberg Bible required the skins of 300 sheep. 
I can see them squeezed into a, the holding pen behind the stone building where the printing press is housed, all of them squirming around to find a little room and looking so much alike it would be nearly impossible to count them. And there's no telling which one of them will carry the news that the Lord is a shepherd, one of the few things they already know. What do you think? I actually love that. Want me to read it again? Okay. Because what I'm going to ask you after that is turn to the person next to you and tell them what you think it means. It's been calculated that each copy of the Gutenberg Bible requires the skins of 300 sheep. I can see them squeezed into the holding pen behind the stone building where the printing press is housed, all of them squirming around to find a little room and looking so much alike it would be nearly impossible to count them. And there's no telling which one of them will carry the news that the Lord is a shepherd, one of the few things they already know. All right. Go. You can be in a group of one or... No groups of one. Groups of two or groups of three. Two or three. What does it mean? I'm <laughs> 
Did everybody get to say something? <laughs> so everybody, did everybody get to say something? Something. <laughs> so let's teach each other. What? Okay, I'm going to read you another poem right away. I'm going to read you not this one. I'm going to read you a Mary Oliver poem, but and then we're going to say aha, aha. So anyway. What do you think about this? Really, teach it. What do you think? Everybody talk. Do you think something? <laughs> okay. Okay. The, the person who thinks has to stand up, face the group, and say in a loud voice their name and what they think. Go ahead. Wow. Yeah, do that? Okay. Yes. Okay, my name is Mark, and my partner's name I don't know. We had totally different ideas. And my idea was that there was this, this horrible, uh, unlimited irony inconsistency between the, the message that supposedly is on that, those pages and the fact that these creatures had to be killed for this message to be conveyed to whoever it was conveyed to. So that was my view. That partner had a, a <laughs> So actually, so far we know two things, is that people have different views. <laughs> Jocelyn, you want to say your view? If you have a view, yeah. <laughs> I'm Jocelyn. My perspective was that the shepherding was uh, God is a shepherd, so the it was God that decided that any particular sheep in that pen was born at the place in time it was born, and that it came to be for you know however the journey was that it became it came to be in that pen, and the sheep knows that it has no choice. I mean, it doesn't maybe doesn't think that way, but it has no choice to descent from uh, that fate uh, that ended up in that pen. So the shepherding happened through God's direction in that the sheep ended up there and, and will meet its fate in a way that was directed by God, if that makes sense. Okay, so, that's a, that's a, the, so two different views already, one about... Uh, one about, you know, thinking about, what do we think about ethics? Just a large question, because it's actually now one of the very big questions up in this country, as a major thing facing this country. Do ends ever justify means? And uh, what, what, what ends justify what means? So 
We can take it all the way to that from Mark's edition. And from Jocelyn's, what about the karma of things that we, you know, that uh, those sheep are in that pen, even if it's a mythical or hypothetical pen in the poet's eye, uh, who was on the beach at Phuket uh, a year ago on the day after Christmas. My cousins, uh, my young cousin studying veterinary medicine in Australia was on the beach in Phuket with his girlfriend. He left the beach six hours before the tsunami to fly back to Australia. He went to Bangkok, uh, and he didn't know that it had happened, so without calling his parents in Canada, he got on a flight to Australia. They heard about the tsunami. They called him on his cell phone. He didn't answer. They spent a very distraught day while he was flying home to Australia. But had he been six hours later on the beach in Phuket, you don't know. And, you know, and um, you just don't know. What else did you think? We had 60 opinions here. Okay, standing up and telling. I think it's Colleen, and in our little group, we talked about the good side of the Gutenberg Bible and how it helped people and kind of the negative side of the, the sheep's giving up themselves for um, something that they already knew. And we kind of discussed about whether it was trying to say that things in life were both good and bad at the same time. So, Colleen, this is the second time that you're here or the third? Well, it's the second time in a row, but then, like, once every two years I show up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe this is a sign now, two weeks in a row. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Good, welcome back. What else? Okay. Who else? Okay. I'm Liz. I, um, it's not different. It's sort of similar. It's that I, I felt like the, the sheep were in here in service of something bigger than themselves. And that mm-hmm. felt like something that resonated for me personally, that sometimes we're called to a higher purpose that doesn't seem so great, but... It's service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. My Mary. Um, actually, you have to I shout, Mary, because of the rain. <laughs> where I went with it was that, actually, it was almost, I noticed that I took a step back from actually the story. At first, I noticed I was had, had feelings toward the story and preferring or not preferring it to be in a particular way, a particular thing happening in the story. What I noticed was how quick I went to a preference about it, and how quickly I went to wanting to make it good or bad, and then realizing that, as you were saying before, there was this way of just with my own karma and my own circumstances in life, that my perception of it would be very different, as I can see here, that everyone has a different take on it, and and how quickly that can change, given the the, the situation, Mm -hmm. the story, or almost doesn't matter what the story was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mary. Everybody talked. So everybody has some. Where? Go, go. <laughs> Who didn't really leave? <laughs> And I thought, 
And what kind of anthropomorphizing by um, giving the sheep this ability to say, I'm giving myself up for this Bible. <laughs> and then I thought, well, when they killed the sheep, did they share the meat with the people that were nearby? Did everybody get to have something? In the... So it was kind of practical. You know what? We are now both adding from uh, uh, from Mary and from Linda is uh, uh, Mary's awareness. We make a story out of everything, and then we react. I like it, and all that. And from Linda, uh, how much we want to make? Th- we, how much we are storytelling animals? You know, we are just storytelling animals. We make a story out of everything. And then we respond to it. We say, well, this would make it an all right story, but it's not so good. But suppose it's this way, suppose it's that way. And I actually think it's, uh, I actually think it's one of the noble things about, no, noble makes it something that we maybe developed and could have not developed, but uh, like one of the paramitas. But that ability to make a story is, I think, uh, the key uh, pivotal point on which empathy rests and the ability to care about other people. I read a quote the other day on Martin Luther King Day when everybody was talking about what's the legacy of Martin Luther King and have we changed and uh, are things different enough? And there was one quote that, that really stayed in my mind of somebody said, uh, Racism is not so prevalent. You know, the problems are not finished. But in essence, racism is not so prevalent in the United States anymore. It has been replaced, however, with elitism and consumerism. So it's still self-centered. You know, it's still about me and not about the other person. Um, That was very interesting to think about because I think that the ability to think about the other person rests on the ability to intuit how they might feel in a certain circumstances where you make a story. Now, like, I, I can tell you right here, right here uh, here's the story this morning. I think about the woman sitting next to me who's now on her way to the hospital, now there having breast surgery, and I think to myself, that could be me. How would I be under those circumstances? And I felt quite a kinship with that woman, I, with her daughter, how old are you? I think about my daughters, how would they feel? It's not nothing to me. She became somebody in this moment dear to me. Uh, I think about, because I'm intuiting that she'll feel a certain way or that this young person, her daughter, will feel a certain way. I watched uh, the Dalai Lama one time. Uh, I've told you this story, I think, a lot. Make a mistake while he was teaching. Really, he was doing an exegesis of a certain text. His interpreter was uh, he was doing it in Tibetan, the interpreter was doing it over into English, and he would kept reading the text and saying, what about it? And the interpreter would say it in English, and he'd go continue leaf by leaf. And at a certain point, he said something, something, and the interpreter said to him, uh, no, you know, that's not what it is. And he said, yeah. And they had a little, like a little discussion back and forth. He, His Holiness says, no, no, it's da-da-da-da. And the interpreter said, no, it's da-da-da-da. And he said, no. And the interpreter said, no, your holiness, it's the other way. And he went back and he looked in the text. Uh-huh. He looked up and he laughed. He's got a little laugh, the Dalai Lama. It's always the same. He goes, ah. he laughs like that. He said, ah. I made a mistake. 
and I and and then they continued. But I was there for a week for a week long conference and a week long teaching of this text on uh, patience from the Bodhisattva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is a an eighth sixth century commentary on the Buddha's teaching. From the whole week, that was the pivotal teaching for me. That here's the, here is the Dalai Lama sitting in front of twelve hundred people, make a mistake of get absolutely you know upside down, actually, you know, not just mildly off. He got it backwards. And so, ah, oh, hey, I made a mistake. I don't like to make a mistake in front of two people or twenty people or forty people. And I'm thinking to myself, oh dear, he made a mistake. He's like, ah. And the difference between him and me, he and I, him and me, is. Uh, that he really has no ego that he's protecting. You know, he made a mistake. So, he made a mistake. Who doesn't make mistakes? So, not even who doesn't make mistakes. If he's the only person who made a mistake in the whole world. I made a mistake, and forward, you correct it. But the stories that we tell ourselves, I made a mistake, now I'll be humiliated, now I'll be discredited, what will people think of me? Can I make a mistake? I've undone my reputation. All those things. <laughs> he doesn't have that all going for him. I made a mistake. Finished. That was the best teaching of the whole week. You know, and when I tell you that story, and then you know that story, and then you do it somewhere else and tell somebody else, I wonder about the passing of messages being what we give as each other from one life to the next. Um, I, uh, you know, the same day that was, uh, two days ago was Martin Luther King, wait a minute, his birthday was Monday. Yesterday, was the 300th birthday of Benjamin Franklin, which I know about because I listened to a lot of public radio, I, I suppose, because that's where I heard it on the radio. And a lot of people talking about uh, Benjamin Franklin. And they say, you know, he's often portrayed as kind of a um, an eccentric, a person who flew kites in the rain or something. <laughs> that's what everybody thinks about him because he discovered something about electricity. And this person has written a book that he was actually probably one of the premier scientists, if not the premier scientist, of his century, that he actually discovered the, about the flow of electricity and how it worked, and always interested in gadgets and how they work, and that he was extremely sensible. He was amongst the framers, I guess, of the Constitution. The most, uh, he was the eldest, and tremendously sensible he talked he talked to they, they read things that he had written about uh, that could be wonderful to read in Congress now about look we have differing ideas but if we keep in mind our similar goal we could certainly work out we don't have to have animosities between us in order to frame something that suits all of our end goals he was very sensible and they talked about him also, this is his writer who's written about him, who I guess really became fond of him in the writing, said he was not, um, oh, they, they said something that was a euphemism about he wasn't exactly the pillar of the church in terms of his family relationships. I think he had a slightly relaxed view of, he, they portrayed him as a man who, uh, had the foibles of any other regular person. So I don't know. There was a kind of a loose way of saying maybe he had some affairs on the side. I don't know what exactly it was, but that 
he he was not known for his uh, monumental virtue. He was known for his monumental, um, um, in terms of uh, moral strictness, he was known for his uh, uh, thoughtfulness in terms of uh, uh, working things out in a kindly way. Sensibleness. was known as a sensible man. So I think to myself, you know, we have legacies that live through us. So I was thinking about what I was going to talk about today when I listened to that yesterday, and I was thinking about what it is about a person from a whole life that gets passed down. On uh, uh, on Saturday when I was here teaching, I was teaching about, you know, do I know about uh, uh, future lives after this one, and do we live again? And I don't know. Somebody said recently, we must live again because we're so much of a waste to be developing ourselves in this life and, you know, make so much progress and not continue it in the next life. So it doesn't seem like a conserving of energy, like God would have been wiser about that, you know. Not, you know, if he didn't finish the job, she didn't finish the job in this life, that it should finish in the next life. But I don't know whether other people don't finish the work of waking up whether the whole fabric of humanity is maybe waking up and that we as part of the fabric of humanity continue to wake it up. Mm. What else? I'm going to read to you one more time unless it comes to you one more thing, in case it comes to you, because there's another line that I like very much that I don't want to forget. It has been calculated that each copy of the Gutenberg Bible required the skins of 300 sheep. I can see them squeezed into the holding pen behind the stone building where the printing press is housed, all of them squirming around to find a little room and looking so much alike it would be nearly impossible to count them. And there is no telling which one of them will carry the news that the Lord is a shepherd, one of the few things they already know. So I'll tell you what line I want to think about because I love this line. What do you think it means, one of the few things they already know? One of the two things? Few things they already know. You know, I'm carried along as you are by the story that all these sheep are going to become parchment and that some of them are going to say, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and some of them are going to say things that, uh, if we really take this literally, they're going to say lines in the Bible that I just as well weren't weren't in in because they're not, and they're going to say, but they're going to say everything all the way from in the beginning to before the eyes of all Israel or wherever you want to end the Bible. And somewhere in there in Psalms, it's going to say the Lord is a shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. So this basically this and it's going to be that. That's going to be that. Going to be that. And what I thought about when I read that is I don't know what part of the fabric of 20 or 50 or 100 years from now I am going to be. But how, what, what of me is going to show up then to carry something somewhere? You know, that, that it wasn't so much the story of the literal turning of 300 sheep into a Bible, but the sheep that carry the words that show up somewhere, and those words, the Lord is my shepherd, that that carried, picked up so many hearts. Which sheep picked up so many hearts in so many ways later on? And that it's a quite a humble beginning 
for words that picked up so many hearts for 2000. When, when did they make a Bible? 1400? Something like that. For this, it's a thousand years later now. No, 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 no. It's 600 years later. So, so many hearts lift up by those words. So, who lifted up what? So, to become part of the fabric of things, literally the fabric of things. I want to read you a Mary Oliver. <coughs> this is called The Buddha's Last Instruction. So, this gets two things. First of all, I remind myself and you that we are teaching the Dharma of the Buddha. But, you know, the Dharma of the Buddha is everybody's Dharma, it's all true. Those four noble truths are not parochial truths. Those are not things that only hold true for Buddhists or for avowed Buddhists. Life is challenging for everyone, and the way in which challenge is managed in the mind either gives rise to a lot of suffering, less suffering, no suffering, the imperative to serve the suffering in the world, all the way along that continuum. This is called The Buddha's Last Instruction. It's Mary Oliver. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan, streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees. He might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upwards, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs detached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills, like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. So that's Mary Oliver. That's the Buddha's last instruction. You want to talk to the person next to you about which words in that what did you think about that? You want to hear it one more time before yeah, I do it? Okay. This is actually true. This is from the Mahaparinibbana Nibbana Sutta, the last teaching of the Buddha before he died. And he did say, make of yourself a light. Be a light unto yourselves, he said. wasn't the last thing he said. I'll tell you the two last things that he said, he's supposed to have said in a little while. Make of yourselves a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees. He might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields around him, The villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen, even before the sun itself hangs detached in the blue air. I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. 
No doubt, he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Talk to the person next to you.
I feel that I just read something in the last two days that was playful. It said, you can't possibly have graduated from college without having had to write an essay on what did Matthew Arnold really mean or something. Anyway, what do you think this poem meant? What did it mean to you? What did it mean to you? Everybody talked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go ahead, Linda. See, Linda, now you can come to class every week. This is nice. <laughs> yes, go. I was just thinking that um, there's a light that, however, when she says this, you know, the sun is rising and her own light is pretty insignificant and, and maybe not necessary, that in fact, you know, I think this is a lesson for all of us. Our own light, however insignificant it may be, is very important. Mm-hmm. And that it's mm-hmm. important to try to Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Lee. No. Come on, one more. There you go. I'm Dee, and I'll go along with Lee a little bit. <laughs> I, f- I always used to feel like the light was out there. It was the beautiful sunrise or the beautiful sunset, and it was somehow out there. And it reminded me of the feeling of that the light is within all of us, and that it's whatever significance we, it's to share it mm-hmm. with humanity, with our spirits, and with it's all around us and it's all within us too mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter how small or how big our, our part is we're all part of it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead up up just adding to what everybody else has already said um, the way it affected me and the way I sort of envisioned Mary Oliver uh, imparting what she did was a reassurance that the Buddha was looking into the faces of of these scared people who just they were losing their their teacher, their leader, and now what now they didn't know what to do. And it was more like mm-hmm. just open to the light. You're part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's all you need to do. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. More? Everybody talked. 
Go, Julie. Um, well, this is a, a this is a very personal response. Um, I uh, until six months ago, I lived in uh, Chico, where I was a teacher, a college teacher, and a psychotherapist, and a member of a co-housing community. And I could feel that resonance and that interaction. I felt like a light and received the light. And then in moving and making this radical change in my life, I'm feeling much more isolated, um, feeling much more difficult to get in touch with my own life. And to coming here feels like taking in the warmth of the light. But I'm surprised to find that the the radical change in my life makes has made it much more difficult to access that part so far. Anybody? Yeah, I'll go. They're way in the back, and then you go. I'm Shelly, and I just came back from a POA retreat. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the way I see that is a direct instruction that the Buddha was giving. Um, so a POA retreat is where you're working on the transformation of consciousness at the time of death. And so it's a practice, and it's direct instructions. It's a Tibetan practice. But... Um, That's one of the things, is that you're practicing connecting with the central channel as light, and that the the eventual product of that is that you're ejecting that light up into the consciousness of Amitabha Buddha. Mm -hmm. And so, when I heard that, I was like, that's pretty much the instruction that I've been getting all week was to make myself this light Mm -hmm. that will eventually uh, unite with Mm -hmm. Buddha or God or whatever, the universal consciousness. So Mm -hmm. I I saw it as like Mm -hmm. a direct um, teaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you very much. Everybody go, go. What I'm so struck by is the what you were just saying and the connection with the sheep again. Like... We don't know which one of us is going to be called to be the light at any given moment, but we all know already that we're the light. (laughs) So in any moment, it's enlightenment, and we're all enlightened already. Didn't the Buddha say that too, is that we're already enlightened? We just struggle and suffer, and so who knows which sheep? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. I want to tuck in. Um, Mary Oliver was on, some of you may have heard her on, NPR just a couple of weeks ago for about an hour and she was wonderful and she read some of her newer poems and they vicious they attack a bush and our government and really call for us all to be alive in order to eliminate all this toxic um, uh, governmental uh, uh, that is affecting us and so it was really a new direction that she's going in for us all to be alive too protect ourselves and to grow our 
our being on this planet. That's very interesting. That's the second volume of new poems. I haven't got it. I just mm, yeah. this was new stuff that yeah. that isn't in a book yet. Ah. Yeah. It's the second volume of new poems. I was just about to buy. One last poem here. We have nine minutes. Um, because this is going to be the end of that message, because then I'll tell you the last thing that the Buddha said before he, under the sala tree, after he said, make of yourself a light. This is called Picnic, Lightning. And uh, it's uh, after a, a line from the book Lolita. And the line from Lolita is, my very photogenic mother died in a freak accident, Picnic, Lightning, when I was three. It is, possible to be, it is possible to be struck by a meteor or a single-engine plane while reading in a chair at home. Safes drop from mountaintops and flatten the odd pedestrian, mostly within the panels of the comics, but still, we know it is possible, as well as the flash of summer lightning, the thermos toppling over, spilling out on the grass. And we know the message can be delivered from within, the heart, no valentine, decides to quit after lunch. The power shut off like a switch. Or a tiny dark ship is unmoored into the flow of the body's rivers, the brain a monastery defenseless on the shore. This is what I think about when I shovel compost into a wheelbarrow (laughs) and when I fill the long flower boxes, then press into rows the limp roots of red impatience. The instant hand of death, always ready to burst forth, from the sleeve of his voluminous cloak. Then the soil is full of marvels, bits of leaf like flakes off a fresco, red-brown pine needles, a a beetle quick to burrow back under the loam. Then the wheelbarrow is a wilder blue, the clouds a brighter white, and all I hear is the rasp of the steel edge against the round stone, the small plants singing, with lifted faces and the click of the sundial as one hour sweeps into the next. Hmm. Everybody everybody says, hmm. (laughs) So, hmm, how does that fit with everything that was saying? And what do you think the Buddha said? What do you think? What do you think? What's that about? Yeah, there you go. My name's Donna. Just quickly, um, what came through me. I used to make tons and tons of compost for 15 years. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the most exciting, inspiring thing to do because of the watching, the alchemy of soil, which we don't call dirt. It's soil. Turns back. All your garbage turns back into this incredible nutritious, yummy soil that we get our food again from. And so it, it, was the t- it was the most inspirational, if you want to call it spiritual, approach to my gardening mm-hmm. that really kept me doing it for all these years. And mm-hmm. I, I would go around and buy, get this horrible garbage from all over. <laughs> my husband would be so embarrassed that I'd go on my neighborhood and get their trash and everything. But it just fed me, and mm-hmm. it feels like that, that you do... I did think a lot about that same feeling of watching death be transformed into this beautiful life. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the feeling I had. And one, I had one negative feeling about the flock mm-hmm. when the sheep were being killed in order mm-hmm. to be the Bible, 
read the Bible. It was the beginning of killing for something that these words killed a lot of people for the, mm -hmm. for the need to have to put it out there and have people believe. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't believe the Crusades, you were being killed for mm -hmm. not believing mm -hmm. in these words. Mm -hmm. And it started with the sheep being killed to even make the Bible. Mm -hmm. So the, the very the important question, again, not to forget that we talked about earlier, about when do ends justify means, and to think about that perhaps some more. There, are there words ever written down anywhere that made a difference? You know, by the way, the Buddha's words were not written down for 300 years, according to history, which gives you a lot of pause to thought about, think about whether... When you think about how a little gossip going down the street changes from one person to the next over 300 years when they said the Buddha said in the Jeddah Grove, whether he said absolutely that thing. But he did say, I want to tell you this before we end, he did say in that same sutta that describes his death, he said two particular things at the end. But what were you going to say, Liz? You had something to say right oh, then. Oh, just for me, it was um, so much about it was um, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? Knowing that we're going to die in every moment, how then shall we live? At any moment, while shoveling compost, mm -hmm. uh, then we go back to Mary Oliver. Mm -hmm. What shall we do with this one mm -hmm. wild and precious life? Mm -hmm. So uh, the Buddha said, it, as his penultimate, next to the last sentence, everything that arises passes away. I'm trying to think of the more uh, uh, formal way to say it. Transient are all transient are all created things. Transient are all created things. So that anything that's come into form will pass away. That particular lesson, which is the same as picnic lightning, you know, it will pass away, and you don't know when. And you don't know of what. And you don't know of what thing on the way to imagining that you'll die of something else. I, I, uh, I, you know, I've, I've probably told you a lot of times going to the oncologist who treated my father after his uh, cancer was diagnosed. And since at the time that wasn't really a, a cancer that had no uh, treatment, uh, his doctor said, well, said to him in that... Uh, meeting at which I was present, you know you're going to die of this. And when we left, my father said, he shouldn't have said that. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know that I won't get run over this afternoon. He doesn't know what will happen to me in the meantime. He doesn't know, you know. That you, but, and, the, the, and, the, and the thing is, I, yeah, I liked his spunk at the time. But, uh, and he lived pretty long for a person with that illness, too. Uh, which may or may not be related to the spunk. You just don't know anything, uh, including when you come and when you leave. So the And going back to what Nancy said about maybe the message when you're dying of fearlessness, which is just to be able to look at people and say, you know, by even by silence, letting in the message, this is what's happening. This is what happens. In fact, that's the lesson. Everything that arises passes away. The important thing for us to think about is what does that knowledge, if that was a really important thing to say as the last teaching, 
What would it do for us? Why is that the most important thing to say? He didn't say in that final moment uh, um, uh, that craving causes suffering. He didn't say the second noble truth, the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. He didn't say that with his last breath. He said everything that arises passes away. That somehow the connection between knowing that and, and abandoning the extra struggle that creates suffering is a really important connection to notice. That this is the only moment in which I'm going to have this moment. Don't know about tomorrow or the next day or the next day. I have the choice in this moment to be in contest with it and to fight with it and to begrudge it and resent it or to say, okay, what now? And then his final sentence, which translates as strive on with diligence. I really like that. Because I, you know, maybe it just it appeals to me, but uh, you know, do something about it. Get that message and then do something about it. My sense is to do something about it is realize everything that arises passes away. Everything is tremendously vulnerable. Have only this moment in which to love, in which to make a difference, in which to do everything, in which to in, in which to be politically active, in which to hope to change the world, in which to write a letter to the editor, in which to call a friend and and invite them to lunch, in which to send a birthday card. We have only this moment in which to do that. And then we run out of them at a certain time, and we don't know whether it's this afternoon or... And it's a timeless message, and it's not a Buddhist message. It's a message message. You know, that there's nothing particularly Buddhist about that. Nor are Mary Oliver, for all the fact that she wrote that Buddhist. Mary Oliver's not a Buddhist, and Billy Collins, as far as I know, is not a Buddhist. But people. So, I won't be here next week because I'll be uh, teaching in Mexico, which is not bad, in, uh, in Zihuatanejo. Oh. <laughs> That's what I thought when I, uh, you, you probably remember Jashoda who taught yoga here. Jashoda said, uh, I teach with my colleague Brahmani in Mexico every January in a hotel overlooking the Pacific. You can just see the mind begin to reach out. In a hotel overlooking the Pacific where the breezes come off the Pacific and it's cool and lovely and warm in January. Two years ago. So, again, everything that has arisen arose and passed away, and now two years have passed, and that date is here, so I'll be there the next week. And uh, Donald will be here, and then I'll be back the week after, and all the way through February and through most of March as well. So I hope that you will. Let's take a breath in and out. Thank you for the money for the homeless um, meals, because I see that Joe is not here, but we have been doing those homeless meals for 12 or 13 years, and uh, Joe takes that money and goes by his food and brings it to the uh, shelter on uh, Mill Street and uh, transforms it into a dinner. We always talk about sometime we'll go a group of us, and so far we haven't done that for one of these years, maybe. May we and all beings 
be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 19, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive.